They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff, like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. Welcome to the Beyond 28 Podcast, presented by Chase. We're going to keep the conversation around Black history going all year long. We're going to continue to celebrate the excellence, the joy, and the love that is Black culture. And each month, a new episode will explore the influence and impact Black people not only have made historically, but also continue to make each and every day host mark j spears so kick back and relax as we get right into it this month on beyond 28 we are looking at the legacy of change and the ongoing fight for civil rights of dr martin luther king jr as we reflect back on the past year and what 2022 has to hold for us We want to take the opportunity to talk with those who witnessed the bravery of Dr. King and those who continue to follow in his footsteps. In the next episode, you'll hear from inspiring artists and church leaders who are not only inspired by Dr. King, but continue his legacy for change. First, in our Center Court segment, we talk with Chaplain Earl Smith, who went from ministering incarcerated men in San Quentin to serving the Golden State Warriors and San Francisco 49ers. Later, in our Beyond the Court segment, we talk with renowned documentary photographer David Johnson about his early career taking photos of the civil rights movement to having his work displayed in the Library of Congress. So kick back, relax, and get ready for some knowledge. I'm your host, Mark Spears from ESPN's The Undefeated. Welcome to Beyond 28. Our next guest is Chaplain Earl Smith, who serves as a chaplain for the San Francisco 49ers and the Golden State Warriors. Chaplain Smith is in an interesting road to ministry. As a young teen, he was called to preach after suffering an almost fatal drug-related shooting. After surviving being shot, he realized that God had called him to ministry, and he started seminary and began to serve the men in San Quentin Prison. We talk with him about his experience ministering to incarcerated men, coming face-to-face with the man that shot him, and how vital it is to keep the work of Dr. King alive today. Well, welcome to another episode of Beyond 28. And man, I'm excited, man. This is this is a friend. This is a mentor. This is a beautiful person, man. Reverend Earl Smith. He's somebody that is near and dear to my heart, near and dear to the Warriors and the San Francisco 49ers heart as their chaplain. Just an amazing person who always, when I see him, you know, I, I'm not privy to being in these Bible studies that the Warriors get to do before the games. But when I see him, man, he always hands me the pamphlet for the Bible study. And I love him for that. He doesn't know this, but I bring him on the road with me, man. Sometimes I just like leave him in my computer bag. And if I'm somewhere on the road, man, I'll take out the pamphlet and read it and do some Bible study. So welcome to Beyond 28. I appreciate it, Mark. And uh, you need to know that I enjoy you. And uh, man, I'm really proud of what you're doing, man. You, you have done some amazing things. And just your journey is, is fantastic, man. So uh, I, I just want to commend you on your journey. 
Well, thank you very much, man. It means more than you know. You know, I guess my first question is, because there's a lot to touch with you, for those who don't really quite understand it, explain what a chaplain is in your role with the 49ers and the Warriors. Well, I think for my role with the 49ers is a bit different than with the Warriors. With the 49ers, I'm responsible for doing the chapel services. I'm doing a team study. And when I say team study, I always try to reference that to say it may not be per se, like someone says, a Bible study. It may be a study. I try to get guys to tell me the themes that they're interested in talking about. Give me some themes. And I write them out and I let guys vote on them. And depending on which one is voted with the highest number of votes, that's the one that we may talk about. And then I sort of go down a category. I travel with the team, a lot of one-on-one with the guys, lots of interaction with them, trying to assist their families. With the Warriors, it's a bit different because I go in and do a chapel service and both teams are there visiting as well as the home team. So the time I get to spend with the Warriors is actually time away from the arena more than anything else. It's meeting somebody for lunch or after a game, having a text message to go back and forth or just a call to follow up on some things that they may have heard at chapel. Those are a bit different when they're on the road is staying in touch with them, checking in to see how they're doing. So it's basically two different type of things, both in a role of a pastor, but just different congregations. When you step in to speak to the players, whether it's the Warriors or the 49ers, which you get about 15 minutes, pretty much? For the Niners, I get about 30. For the Warriors, I get about 20, 22. What's kind of your game plan going into that? And what are you hoping they get from that moment? I use it the same way I did with setting up messages in San Quentin. I know that they may not be able to be discipled per se, because they're going from place to place, can't really be rooted in a church because of the season. So I try to make my messages in patterns so they're going forward. It's like now I'm teaching on new, on the newness. I talk about a new thing, a new covenant, a new birth, because this is the new year. So I try to make themes like that, and I try to do it in such a way that they ask me questions. If I hear them saying anything I try to see how I can bridge some of what I've heard them say or some of the questions they've asked me into the message to actually give them an answer, but also give them a handout with an answer so they can go back and review. So, Rev, I also wanted to ask, you've also served as chaplain for San Quentin. Tell me about that and how meaningful that has been for you. I think that if I had one thing that I could say that God has really blessed me to do, it would be that chaplaincy at the prison. It was a chaplaincy working with guys similar to myself. I remember when I I got shot, I heard the voice of God tell me I wasn't going to die. I was going to be a chaplain to San Quentin. And in 83, I was hired there as youngest person ever hired. I didn't know what I was doing. But I thought because of who I was, I could figure it out. San Quentin really helped me to understand who God was. And the more I understood who he was, the more I came to know who I was. San Quentin was different because I was in charge of condemn row. They had no protocol for executions. And then I had to be involved in one. So I had to write the protocol for that. But more than that, I had to figure out how to get men to work together. 
how to get guys who are different ethnic groups, different religious affiliations. How can we get you to work together for a common good? And so I started the baseball team. That was pretty cool. Uh, I love baseball. We had the guys come from a lot of different groups to try out for the team. I've had some great, great opportunities to talk with people. I remember uh, Geronimo Pratt was in there and one day I'm in my office with Pastor Donald Green. I get a knock on the door and it's Geronimo. I said, what's going on? He said, this is Huey Newton. He needs you. So he brings Huey into my office. And if you remember, Geronimo had vowed that if he ever saw Huey again, he would kill him because Huey didn't allow any of the Panthers to speak on his behalf when he was sentenced. And yet, after all of that was said and done, when he finally saw him, he brought him to my office. So for me, I thought, okay, God, what a blessing that you have me in a place that I can be available to be a vessel to help in, in healing. It was just an unbelievable opportunity, and I feel there was nothing like it, man. Reverend, take me back to your days in Stockton, because you could have very well ended up in San Quentin. <laughs> um, I did. <laughs> Uh, I mean, in a, in another way, with the direction that you were going, if you can, just take us back to some of your challenges and what you were involved with during your youth in Stockton and how that ultimately changed. It's like the stuff of movies. When I was growing up, I really felt like I had no connection with my mom. So I was angry about that. And if you understand anything, if you're angry as a kid, you can't strike out at the person that you want to because they're bigger than you. So I struck out at other people. I started harming people. I remember I found a knife on the ground and picked it up and stuck one of my friends. And uh, so everybody called me crazy after that. And they all were all the prophets in the neighborhood said that boy is going to end up at San Quentin. I fought all the time, sold drugs, gang member. And everything I did, I was trying to elevate my presence, trying to elevate who I was and my significance, I thought that that would be a way to finally make people understand. But you know, today, I need to have a caveat here. Today, my mom and I have a different relationship because I didn't understand what tools she had in her toolbox and what she was really, what she was able to manage and deal with. And as a kid, sometimes you just don't know what people are having to deal with. And anger comes out older I gotten, the more I can sort of see with clarity what was going on. For me, it was just violence after violence. I was 19 years old, shot six times a contract because someone owed me money they couldn't pay. They figured I was going to kill them, so they tried to have someone kill me. And that was my life. And I, and I remember going to the hospital and the doctor saying, tell the police who did it, you're going to die. <laughs> and I remember laughing at them, thinking, you know, I, what do you mean tell? Uh, my life was built on the premise that the street reputation was more important than anything. Now, in between all of that, my father comes in and he asked the doctor, how bad was it? And the doctor said, he's not going to make it. And my, I, I'm laying on this gurney. I'm burning up. I got seven holes in me, six bullets. One went in, one came out and went back in somewhere else. Face all shot up, my neck, everything shot up. My dad grabs this doctor and says, you do what you do best. I'm going to go do what I do best. My dad left to pray. The doctor left because he figured I was dying. 
And this voice comes and all of a sudden there's a calmness, no longer burning, no longer feeling anything. And the voice says, you're not going to die, I have something for you to do. I started laughing. The doctor came back thinking I was going into shock. I said, if I tell you where the bullets are, will it help? And the doctor looked at me. He says, no. I pointed at my nose. The bleeding stopped. I pointed at my neck. The bleeding stopped. Pointed at my face. The bleeding stopped. And where I pointed, the bleeding stopped. The doctor didn't know what was going on. My dad walks back in and he grabs my hand. He says, son, you're a rebel, but you're God's rebel and he's going to use you. How did your story help guys relate with you in San Quentin? I mean, I'm sure you talked to them about that, and you had to connect with them some way, so I'm guessing that story was part of your testimony to do that. At that point, there was like 20, when I started, 23,000 people or 26,000 people in the prison system, and the people were sort of set in prisons by geographic areas, so I knew people that were there. They knew me, and so that helped in terms of guys saying, well, that's such and such, and they tell you where I was from and go through the whole thing. In fact, my first December there, I was giving out Christmas cards, and I came across the guy that shot me. I'd seen him once when he shot me, once when we went to court. I didn't testify against him because I wanted him on the street so I could kill him, and he was on the tier with all the guys that I knew, my guys. Even though I came and I was a pastor now, they still remembered who I was. And I remember this guy wrote the warden a letter and said, you got to get me out of this prison. The chaplain's going to have me killed. And they called me in for this investigation. And I looked at him and said, hey, the safest place that man will ever be is where he is. Because I told him, so I told that guy something. I said, man, I need to thank you because God used you to get to me. Those guys in the prison because they understood where I came from, they were pulling for me probably more than a lot of other people because I could represent hope. I could represent the possibility of change, even if they were not going to be able to go home. Hey, one of my best friends, we both got shot the same night, different parts of town. I started in the ministry. He went back to selling dope. He killed a narcotics agent. He's still doing life without the possibility today in prison, but he ended up in San Quentin with me. So he got in the choir. He got in my singing group I started. One of my best friends. We're in a month, the month of January. We have MLK Day. What did Dr. Martin Luther King mean to you? As I think of Dr. King, I think he represented hope. And yet he represented someone that spoke to the marginalized. He spoke to someone who perhaps had their dreams deferred by circumstances, situations. He spoke to people that were incarcerated, not so much in prisons, but incarcerated by economics, geographics, family. They're incarcerated by a lot of other things. And for me, he represents that voice that we still need to hear today. I, I In a couple of days, I'm going to be in... Uh, Des Moines, Iowa, speaking for Martin Luther King Day. And I'm going to be speaking at the same place he spoke at in 1959. I was thinking he was in Des Moines, Iowa. Wow. When I think of Dr. King, I think of somebody that was not afraid to speak. And he had a voice that resonated more from his heart than his words. And he had some powerful words. What do you think about what the NBA has done for years in celebrating his legacy and 
what do you talk to the players about? I'm sure his passing probably had a significant impact on you. Oh, sure. I remember the day they passed away. I was <laughs> I was in elementary school, and I remember when they said that he was killed. There was a lot of tears. There were a lot of upset people, and I was trying to figure it out. My father knew him. It was a very troubling thing to think that it's almost like instead of Moses being told by God, you're not going to go to the promised land, you're going to leave here and I'm going to pass this on to Joshua. He didn't have a chance to do that. His life was taken at a point when he had spoke about the promised land. He had spoke about a time and I would listen to his speeches and go over and over. I've listened to so many of them. So I think it was almost as if we were robbed at that point. I remember the riots, and I remember thinking, is that what Dr. King would do? Is this what? Is this the response? And I was a kid. Is this what Dr. King would do right now? So many years later, why do you think King means so much to Black people, to people, to the world? I think King means so much to Black people because we've had a lot of people that raise their hands and say, I'm the next Black leader. But King never raised his hand to say, I'm the next black leader. He just was the leader. And we find that there's a void now where we're saying, if you look at the NBA and they give out the MLK t-shirts in the stadiums and in the arenas and the guys will wear them out for warmups and they try to allow that to be a statement, but Dr. King's legacy is more than a day. Dr. King's legacy is much more than That one day a year, I remember thinking about Arizona and how long it took them to even embrace the legacy and even embrace the holiday. So when you see the players, I mean, we're going to be playing on Sunday. There's going to be a game on Monday on the day of the celebration in the NFL. There's going to be things going on. It's almost like a drive-by for King. And we'll get the drive-by, it'll get sprayed, and the vehicle just goes by. Is that really his message? No, his message is much grander. It's much greater than that drive-by incident. What message do you have about the importance of Black history and learning from it so we could grow in the future? Well, the message I would say, first of all, it must be something to be taught if there are so many states that are now saying don't teach it. If there are states that are saying that we're going to outlaw the message, we're going to outlaw the books that speak about it. We're going back to a time when we were basically being told what we could learn. And in order to really learn, we had to do it away from the school. We had to do it in communities. The whole oral tradition gets back to it. And I believe that it's a great opportunity if we take it for younger people to sit down with their elders and allow the elders to start to teach again. So I believe that it's a pivotal point right now for the elders to stand up and say, if they won't allow you to learn this in the schools, I need you to sit around the fire with me. If you think about the campfire, and I know we have to go, but if you think about the campfire, there's two campfire stories in the Bible that really hit us. The first campfire was when Peter sat around the fire while Jesus was in the court being condemned. He sat there and he denied him three times, but he was around the fire. The next campfire that's really significant is that fire when Jesus sets it on the shore 
and he puts fish on there, and he has this meal for Peter and the guys that are fishing. So I believe that we need to start a campfire program again where the elders are saying, I've set this fire out for you. I want you to come sit around with me, and I want to tell you some things that I want you to pass on to your next generation. And so I think it's a great opportunity if we'll take it that if they say that they don't want to have it taught in the schools, great, let's go back to oral tradition. We have the books, we have the information. Let Mark Spears go sit down with a group of young people that want to be writers, that want to be on television, that want to be sports announcers, and sit down and tell them the history of who the first Black people were that did that and what they had to go to. Let Mark Spears say what I had to do to get to where I'm at right now and some of the journeys and some of the struggles. Let the kids ask a Mark Spears a question, and you can go from place to place. And that's what I believe. So it's a great opportunity, in my opinion. Well, Reverend, man, thank you. Thank you for everything. Love you. Love you, Mark. Thank you, man. I hope you enjoyed uh, being on Beyond 28, man. We got to get you back every year. I appreciate this, man. Thank you so much. In our next segment, we have the pleasure of speaking with renowned documentary photographer David Johnson. Johnson, who is 95 years old, has lived an extraordinary life. He developed a love of photos at a young age and was the first black student of the famous photographer Ansel Adams. Taking his training, he went on to document the civil rights movement and was able to capture Dr. King's iconic speech at Grace Cathedral in San Francisco. He then went on to spend time in the Fillmore neighborhood of San Francisco where he documented black life. His work can now be seen in the Library of Congress. We'll hear what it was like to be able to capture the birth of a movement and what he thinks about the legacy of his work. You started your uh, photography career first as a student under the legendary Ansel Adams, and you were the first black student under his new program at the California School of Fine Arts in San Francisco. What was it like learning from him, and what were the biggest influence of his work and your work? In terms of comparing myself with his making photograph, but I was an eager beginner, and if Ansel Adams could do it and if he could teach me, I could do it, and I did. What were the biggest lessons you learned from him? From him is to be very careful about how you read your image. Also, in terms of the people that you're interviewing, give them the time to answer you and understand what the questions that you were asking. It took me a little while to learn that, but I finally got it. And I lived in his house <laughs> in San Francisco, so I felt like I was a member of the family in a way. But it was a good experience, and I think it launched me on my way to become a famous photographer. It is noted that your photography focuses on black and white images and largely reflects San Francisco's Fillmore District community from the 1950s to the 60s. What stories were you looking to try to tell through your photography during that time? First, I wanted to become at ease on the streets of uh, the Fillmore District. And I didn't know a lot of people, so I, I made some friends with them who were interested when I explained to them why I'm here and how I would, uh, would like to uh, treat the images that I, you will be proud of my work. And I lived up to that. What were some of your most memorable photographs from the Fillmore District? Any celebrities or notable politicians you remember taking pictures of or events? The people on the streets of the Fillmore District at that time, some people were beggars and some people were just minding their own business. And I, I had a problem adjusting to this behavior on both sides. And here I am trying to photograph them. And I didn't want them to think that I was there to, you know, milk their business or something. 
I wanted them to see me as, as a friend if they could understand that. And I did my best, and I think I'd succeed. Otherwise, the images that you see that I took, people were eager. I'll take it, Mr. Johnson. Shall we put it here? Shall we do it or there? And I became friends with people on the street. In San Francisco, some of the prominent stars would come to uh, perform there. And here I'm going to be facing them. And how am I going to handle myself? What do you want to take my picture for? So I became accustomed to it. People like Eartha Kitt, no problem, David. You want me to stand over here and pose there? Yes. They were impressed. Who is this guy? What's he want to do? Want to go out and make some pictures on me? No, I want to record what you're doing for history. And it's so. And it worked, as you can see. What was it like having the opportunity to photograph such historic events throughout the civil rights movement when you were a young photographer? The civil rights movement is all over the country, okay. And I'm in San Francisco. And there were people in San Francisco who were playing a role in the civil rights movement. They became my friends. They adopted me practically. And they produced some good photographs, which I would share with them. And that's what they want to know. Will I get a picture of that? No problem. You'll get a picture of this. And I did my best to produce that kind of image that I could be proud of. And my work was not for sale to them. I'm a kid out here taking photographs, but I'm also very serious about this, the work that we're doing. And I'm equally serious with the role that you're playing. So I envy you. I want to be part of that role also. And how will you do it, David? I will photograph you. You were put on assignment to photograph Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. What was that experience like, and what were your fondest memories of being there for the speech? Didn't have much of a chance to talk to him. But when I did get a chance, I would say, Hi, Martin, how are you? He would treat me like, who is this kid? You know, much, much younger in those days. But I presented myself as someone who was interested in the work that they were doing, that we would both profit by this, and we have. What what is your most memorable photograph? What photograph have you taken that means the most to you? One of the the young man in the uh, in the parade climbed up on a on a, a statue of a of Lincoln, and I kind of had to keep an, an eye for prominent people. And with the young man with the American flag posing with Lincoln was probably the key to many of the photographs I took because you know. I've been to school now, you know, I've been to class, and I now know who some of the prominent people are. And to see them in person in a parade, and I've got a camera, was a must. Take that photograph. And that's really kind of how I relied on people that I had heard about. And for the sake of my own career and for the sake of what I'm attempting to do, I meet them, shake hands with them, and tell them how much I appreciate their cooperation. I think that was the key to many of the photographs I took. How does it feel to see your work over the years now being honored in the Library of Congress? How does it feel? It feels great. It feels wonderful. I can brag about the accomplishments I made. I can look at my work and say, David, you did it, didn't you? Yes, I did. God was on my side. The cameras was with me. I had everything I needed. It was just working in my favor. And... Here we are today with fond memories of that part of uh, history, particularly as it affects black people and the entire nation for that matter. 
Sir, thank you very much, Mr. Johnson. Thank you for your photography contributions and being a legend. Much appreciated and um, enjoyed talking to you. Thank you also. That's all the time we have today on Beyond 28. I want to thank our guests today, David Johnson and Chaplain Earl Smith. If you like what you've heard and haven't already done so, please go to the Beyond 28 page and Apple Podcasts and give us five stars. It makes a huge difference. I'm your host, Mark J. Spears from ESPN's The Undefeated. Thanks for listening. When your space has the long-lasting, noticeable scent of Airwick Vibrant Essential Mist, you'll want to invite everyone over. From book club to reality TV watch parties, even the in-laws. It smells amazing. Airwick Vibrant Essential Mist is infused with two times more essential oil versus regular Airwick Essential Mist for our most authentic, nature-inspired fragrance experience. Airwick Vibrant Essential Mist is perfectly portable and effortlessly easy. The way fragrance should be. Now that's a breath of fresh Airwick.